With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. We're back. Yes, we are. (laughs) I beat Adam to the punch this time. Sorry about the ooh. I was listening to (laughs) Trivium before we started, so I got metal going in my head right now. Metal. Right? And little factoid, um, which is probably smaller than a fact. I think a factoid is one increment smaller than a fact. Um, I used to. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I used to guitar tech for a band that opened up for Trivium when they played here in Nashville. And I actually learned a whole lot from their guitar tech. Sad thing is I can't remember his name and I doubt he's listening to this, but if he is, thanks man. Who I don't remember his name. <laughs> Cause that guy's going, I don't remember that guy's name. Yeah. He's like, I, I don't remember that guy either. I don't. There's, there's about a dozen people out there going, that could be me. Yeah. That could have been me. I think I worked. <laughs> I for, think I know that. Yeah. Guy. So, uh, on the band front, um, my stepdad and I ran down uh, Saturday, and I didn't tell you about this. We ran down to Wishbone Studios in Muscle Shoals, and that's where like Hank Jr. and Waylon and stuff recorded back in the day. Just ran down? Yeah. I, Just like cross street? No. I mean, <laughs> but we're cross-country runners, you know. Oh, no, oh okay. Yeah. Now, we had to, uh, <laughs> had to run down and pick up some equipment for my stepdad's office. Um but on the way back, all of that to say, on the way back, we stopped at a McDonald's to get some coffee. And we walk in, and I look over to the right, and there's this guy in one of the booths there. And he's, like, I see him from behind, and he's kind of slumped over a little bit. And he's got on, like, this motorcycle club jacket thing, yeah. like he's in a motorcycle gang, leather with the big patch on the back. So we keep walking, and I glance over. And dude is passed out cold at the table. Cell phone in one hand, burger in the other hand, just slumped over. In the thing. And dude, stop. Yeah. No more. Right. You've had enough, man. But then my whole thing, the whole time I was thinking, I wonder if dude's dead. Like, am I seeing yeah. a dead body here? You know, holding the cheeseburger. Right. Well, he had dropped it by the time we left. Oh, okay. it was on the floor by the time we left. But. Like, I've been thinking about that ever since, wondering, should I go look at news reports or something? Because every single person that walked in after us glanced at him and kind of made a wide path around him. Nobody yeah, wanted sure. to mess with him, you know? Yeah, why not? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go over. Go no. over and poke him. Right. See what happens then, you yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
hey, go poke at biker slumped right. over there. That, that's going to work. That's going to work. Yeah, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> anyway, um, on to business. Guys, uh, if you have emailed us or sent us a message on Facebook and we have not responded to you, I wanted to apologize. Life has been crazy around here, so we've gotten behind on responding to emails and stuff like that. Rest assured, we will get to you guys. Um, it just might take a little while because um, it's nuts, like we said. Also, head over to our website and check out this month's book suggestion. We've got a new one up. And while you're there, go over to the Patreon button, click the Patreon button, and become a patron. We're going to be recording another bonus episode here pretty soon, and we'll get it up there for you guys. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you if you haven't made the, the decision to pull the trigger and become a patron, um, give it a shot. I, I think you, uh, you'll really enjoy... Uh, the stuff that we've got coming up, and and some of the things we've already we've already done. So right, yeah, give it a shot. And uh, Matt, you've got some of the shout outs for this month here. I do, I do. So these folks, uh, these folks have uh, have generously uh, become patrons of the show, and and we want to thank them. Uh, Thomas Simmons, uh, Whitney Schlottiger. Evan Zundel, Jason Peverly, Tiffany Vicenin, Edwin Hernandez Gunn, Robert Heaton, Marie Payne, Stephanie Sparrow, Brianne Barr, Lisa Weaver, Cassandra Wanberg, Kristen, Kristen Atkins, Heidi Manti, Donna Womble, Julia Poole, Nicole Gant, Sharon Murdoch, and Desdemona. Thank you guys so much. Uh, this is how Adam and I can keep this going. And um, and we really, really appreciate it. So uh, if you want to hear your name on the show, uh, go to our website and become a patron. And uh, you'll get the, the opportunity to enjoy some of the other goodies that we have for our patrons. Right. Um, on another note, we had put up a survey type questionnaire type thing on twitter and on facebook over the weekend last weekend and we tallied the votes and it looks as though the next episode we're gonna do is going to be superhumans no sorry dragons (laughs) it was it was really close uh, Take was, a stab at which one was mine. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was it was within like five votes total of what won, and dragons happen to win out. Now that does not mean we won't do superhumans. Right, it's on the list. Yep, superhumans it's in the is queue. Definitely going to get done. It just won't be done next. Right. Um. So the next one we're going to do after this episode is going to be dragons. Now, while we're talking about shows, Matt, let's talk about. July, because July is going to be kind of a big month for us. Now, everybody's going to be, it's summer, everybody's going to be going to the lake, and everybody's going to be enjoying water sports and getting out there and swimming and all that stuff. So we are going to screw this up for you guys big time. That's right. All July is going to be Lake Monsters. Lake Monster Month on Graveyard Tales. it's got a nice ring to it. Hey, I like, I like it. that. Um, <laughs> We're going to start running commercials like Shark Week. Right. <laughs> Starting the first week of July is <laughs> Lake Monster Month on Graveyard Tales. So 
Join us in July if you're interested in Lake Monsters. If you're not, we may make you interested in Lake Monsters. You never know. They're kind of interesting, and Matt and I have been talking about it for a little while, and we decided just do a whole month of them. That's right. So before we get into what tonight's episode is about, which is kind of a lead-in into July, let's take a quick potty break. You don't have to be from Philadelphia to love the Twisted Philly podcast. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. Hi, I'm Dina Marie, the host of Twisted Philly. Join me every week for some of my favorite stories from the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. We'll talk about true crime, haunted history, legends and local lore, plus some of my most favorite places to visit all around Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. You can follow me on social media, on Facebook at The Twisted Philly Podcast, and on Twitter at Twisted underscore Philly. And you can find my show on all major podcast apps. Plus, if you're a Patreon supporter, you get access to exclusive content twice a month that isn't available to other listeners. Join me every week in Twisted Philly. All righty, Matt. So what are we talking about tonight, Matt? Okay, tonight we're going to be talking about the the monster of Lake Champlain, Champ. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> Lovingly known as Champ. Or Champy. Yeah, or the, Champy. Or or Phil, if you know him really well. Yeah, know him personally like we do. We call yeah, him Phil. Yeah. I mean, you know, when when he texts me, it says Phil on there, and I know who that, it is. That's weird, because I've got him as Phil Doe. <laughs> when he texts me, so it's a pet name we have. You can't really read it because it's hard to text with big giant flippers. Yeah, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, enough kidding aside. So yeah, we are talking about Champ, which is is the uh, the nickname given to the monster that supposedly re- resides in Lake Champlain. So Lake Champlain is a it's a natural freshwater lake in North America. It. it mainly within the borders of the U.S. uh, between Vermont and New York State. Um, Part of it is situated just across the the uh, Canada-U.S. border in Quebec. So the lake itself covers about 514 square miles, so it's not small. Uh, It's got an average depth of about 64 feet, measuring 400 feet. At its deepest point. That's a deep lake. That's a deep lake. Now, it's it's not like the deepest lake in North America, but that's pretty stinking deep. Mm-hmm. Um, it was originally a saltwater lake um, that was fed by the Atlantic Ocean. Right. Um, but over the centuries, it was cut off from the St. Lawrence Seaway, and it eventually became a freshwater lake. Right. And and that's important to remember because it plays into the theories of what's really going on there. Right. A couple of little other uh, factoids to add to your thing is I noticed um, when I was looking up some of that stuff that it also contains 70 islands within that lake. And it actually provides drinking water for 200,000 plus people in that area. So keep that in mind that Champ is pooping in <laughs> drinking water for 200,000 plus people. Oh, what a lovely thought. Monster doo-doo. <laughs> um, so one of the first people that was credited with discovering Champ 
was Samuel de Champlain. And he was a French cartographer, a navigator, and explorer. And apparently, he wrote about Champ in his diary in 1609. Now, here's what is supposedly in his diary. He reported a 20-foot-long serpent and, quote, The point of the snout is like that of a hog. This fish makes war on all others in the lakes and rivers and possesses, as these people, the Algonquin Indians he's talking about, assure me a wonderful instinct, which is that when it wants to catch any bird, it goes among the rushes or reeds bordering the lake in many places, keeping its beak out of the water without budging, so that when the birds perch on his beak, imagining it a limb of a tree, it is so subtle that closing the jaws, which it keeps half open, it draws the birds underwater by the feet. The Indians gave me a head of it, which they prize highly, saying when they have a headache, they let blood with the teeth of, its, of this fish at the seat of the pain, which immediately goes away. So it's a magic fish. Apparently. Healing, healing fish. According to the that supposed... Can, they can eat birds. Right. To the supposed journal entry. Okay. But this, <laughs> this is what really mm-hmm. is, is in uh, Samuel de Champlain's uh, journal. Right. There is also a great abundance of fish of many varieties. Among others, one called by the savages of the country, Chalsaru, which varies in length. The largest being, as the people told me, eight or ten feet long. I saw some five feet long, which were as large as my thigh. The head being as big as my two fists, with a snout two feet and a half long, and a double row of very sharp and dangerous teeth. Its body is in shape very much like that of a pike, but it is armed with scales so strong and a poniard could not pierce them. Its color is silver gray. And so for, uh, for all you uneducated folks like me, um, a poniard is essentially a dagger. Right. So he, he was saying that, you know, uh, essentially the scales were so tough that a, that a dagger couldn't pierce it. Right. So. And a, a lot of people say that he's referring to there as like one of the, the natural occurring like sturgeon or sure. whatever in that lake. I mean, it sure does sound like that's what he's describing. Right. right. Um. And, and that's possible, you know, so the supposed journal entry could probably have been either made up or one of, you know, the other people in his team could have said it and somebody just said Samuel said it. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, because, you know, Champlain nor the Native Americans in that area had the ability to Google what they saw. Right. You know, they, they just had to kind of guess. And if it was something new, then they they... Gave it a name or they, you know, they, they described it. They, they did something and depending on how it behaved, that's how they approached it. Right. And, and so something that worked as uniquely as this, you know, would, would develop stories. Right. You know, from the, the people native to that area. Sure. And speaking of those stories and the native Americans around that area, sightings of, champ or of a monster in this lake actually go back centuries. Now, Dr. Gerard 
Leduc, an archaeologist, he discovered petroglyphs of a snake-like or dragon-like creature and a boat in, and I'm going to mispronounce this, in Frelisburg, Quebec. And these petroglyphs have also been found in Vermont near the town of Battleboro. Now, there are several different animals that have been found in these petroglyphs. And, you know, they're natural animals around the area, the fish that you would normally find or catch there. But then a lot of them include something that resembles champ. And keep in mind, this is going back hundreds and hundreds of years to when they first started drawing pictures of stuff that they saw. Now, all of the Native American tribes living around that area left these drawings. So, you know, the Algonquin, the Iroquois, the Abenaki, all of these left some kind of drawing of it. But they also would leave, you know, hand down these stories of a serpentined, serpentine-like beast that would inhabit the depths of the lake or of a horned serpent that lived in the lake. And a lot of the early French explorers would use Abenaki guides to navigate the lake, and they were always warned of this lake monster. They cautioned them from making a whole lot of unnecessary noise in or near the water or throwing things into the water because it would excite whatever creature lived there and would provoke an attack. You say, okay, well, that doesn't tell me what Champ looks like or this monster looks like. So we found a kind of a description that was pulled together by a lot of the sightings and what people described of Champ. So we've got here what they say, and it says... The length is between 10 and 187 feet long. <laughs> Wait. That's a That's a hard that that's a that's a big gap. That's ginormous. Yeah. yeah. That's a big gap. But, I mean, so so look, so so think about this. Think about it this way. So if it's 10 feet long, it's the length from the floor to a basketball goal. Right. 10 feet. Now that's pretty good size. Yeah. Okay. 187 feet. All right, so if, if you if you consider that uh, a football field is 300 feet. Right. So it's more than half the length of a football field. Mm-hmm. Okay, sports metaphors there for measurement. I know, but you can picture it in That's your head. An American football field. An American football field. Uh, okay. Yeah. It's true, you know. Um, so an American football field, 100 yards, 300 feet. 187 feet it's yeah. it's it's more it's more than 50 yards long mm-hmm. it's got a large range apparently yeah. a large range i mean i don't know that, that sounds like two different things yeah i mean well well just, maybe yeah we'll, we'll get into that yeah we'll 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 get down there toward the end of this episode now the head shape has a whole bunch of different uh descriptions as well it's flat-headed or round-headed Horned or having moose-like antlers, elephant ears, a mane of either tan or red, and jaws like an alligator. The body shape has anywhere from one to four humps and up to five arching coils, has fins and a 
fairly snake-like body. The skin type ranges from scaly to smooth, depending on the siding. And the color, either drab or shiny, black, dark head with white body, gray, black and gray, brown, moss green, reddish bronze, dark brownish olive. Now, the eyes, they say, are about dinner plate size and usually glowing. That's big eyes. Yep. So they they kind of, I guess, agreed on that. Everything else, you've got a wide variety of description. Yeah. You know what animal has the biggest eyes? What's that? An ostrich. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You ever seen the size of those eggs? If you had to lay an egg like that, your eyes would get that big, too. <laughs> Man. I'm I'm gonna find a rim shot uh, sound effect that we can put in. So after now that we've discussed what it looks like, let's get into people who have seen it and the different sightings. Okay, so there have been over 300 documented sightings of the Lake Champlain monster, affectionately known as Champ. So in 1819. A report uh, from the Plattsburgh Republican entitled Cape Ann Serpent on Lake Champlain. It reports that a Captain Crum sighted an enormous serpentine monster. Now, Crum estimated the monster to have been about 187 feet long. So that's that's where that comes from. And approximately two, it was approximately 200 yards away from him. So, that, I mean, that's a big distance to see mm-hmm. something and, and judge its size. But but despite that great distance, he claimed to have witnessed it, witnessed it being followed by two large sturgeon and a billfish and was able to see that it had three teeth and eyes the color of peeled onions. He also described the monster as having a belt of red around its neck and a white star on its forehead. That sounds kind of like a Dr. Zeus creature. It really does. I, you know, I, that, that's the only thing I've heard about the white star. Yeah. Now, I've heard about white markings on the head or the face or even in the mouth, um, but not in the shape of a star. Well, Crumb's description, it, you know, it's so, it's so far away from anything else that we've ran into. Right. That it, it's one of those things that makes you go, hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it does. but. Because of where it was and the time it was, it's it's relevant because it's one of the earliest sightings right. that we know of, of what people will say is, is champ. Right. And along in the 1800s, like Matt said, the Captain Crumb sighting was one of the first documented. But there was a whole bunch during the 1800s that happen you know a lot of them happened there in the Bullwaga Bay the same area that Captain Crumb saw his now in 1819 as well several pioneers near Port Henry saw a creature swimming and reported it but a lot of these sightings will come from passengers that are traveling on steamboats through and across Lake Champlain now there was a report from 1871 from the Temperance Advocate and they said that Champ was spotted by passengers aboard the Curlew moving at, quote, railroad speed. 
The passengers observed disturbances in the water about 30 feet from the monster and said its head was erect above the water. Now, the WB Eddy, which is a small steamboat, was also traveling uh, near Dresden, New York, and it was nearly capsized by Champ in the summer of 1873. Whether the boat hit Champ or Champ hit the boat was never clear, but apparently it shook the boat violently, and passengers witnessed the head of a large snake about 100 feet from the boat, and the strange creature quickly swam away and disappeared once again into the depths. Now, there's I've got a few more here, and these are from Lauren Coleman's Cryptozoology A to Z book. Mm-hmm. And Lauren does a really good job of documenting some of yeah. the more obscure yeah, sightings. Yeah, he does. Um, always go to Lauren when you when you want some really good research into sightings of cryptids. Now, on August 30th, 1878, there was a yacht named the Rob Roy, and it was sitting off Button Bay Island. There were six people on the boat who saw a large monster swimming rapidly by, and its head was occasionally projecting through the smooth-as-glass water surface. So it would swim along, pop its head up, swim along, and pop its head up. Now, the next year, on November 5th, 1879... Three students from the University of Burlington saw Champ. It was there was fifteen feet of Champ visible above the water as it traveled gracefully from Apple Tree Point around Rock Dunder. I don't know where Rock Dunder is. But yeah, me either. We'll we'll have to look it up. We'll Google it. Yeah, we'll we can do that. We can. I've got the technology. <laughs> you have the power. Now on July 9th, eighteen eighty seven, Champ made one of his biggest appearances during the 1800s, and this was near East Charlotte, Vermont. There was a group of people picnicking on a spot overlooking the lake, and they happened to see Champ start coming around a bend. Its flat, snake-like head was poking above the water, and it was making a beeline toward them, just heading straight toward them at a really fast pace. And as it got pretty close to the shore... A couple of the people in that group screamed, and it apparently spooked Champ enough where he whirled around to the right and dove underneath the waves and disappeared. Yeah, this makes him sound like a dog, mm-hmm. like he's a curious dog. Like, hey, there's some people over there. And I'm like, that that would make me think that there should be more photo evidence of of Champ if. If these reports where he just approaches human, mm-hmm. you know, and he's not camera shy or or frightened away, you know, by the presence of humans, you would think by now somebody would have more more photos. Right. Well, one of my theories, which we'll get into later, would suggest maybe a difference in attitude and... <laughs> I'm gonna attitude. Yeah, I'm gonna leave it at that for now until we get into it. But I'll I'll come back to what you're saying because oh, okay. I kind of have. We'll a, see how it goes. Yeah, I have a thing against that. But, but hey, did you know in 1887 that P.T. Barnum offered a fifty thousand dollar prize for anyone that could bring him Champ dead or alive? That's a lot of money now, for that. Actually, he did this twice. He did it in 1873, and he did it again in 1887, and 
these events seem to coincide with when there's several sightings. Right. And and the interest is peaked because, right. you know, he's a showman. Well, sure. You know, I'm going to take advantage of this. Sure. You know, so, I mean, it's that, that's a win-win, you mm-hmm. know, for him, for somebody like P.T. Barnum. You know, hey, you know, worst case scenario, somebody finds him and I got to cough up $50,000, but now I've got this lake monster in my show. Right. You know, which is going to be worth way more than 50 grand to me. Yeah. You know, or nobody finds him and I get to keep my money. Right. But they have still heard about you and heard about your. That's right. You know, your curiosities and they, well, why does he want this? And then they go check out what you've got. So. Like yeah, you said, sure. it's a win-win. He, oh, yeah. He knew how to uh, sell himself and sell what he had. Yeah. So right on the heels of of we, us talking about photographic evidence and rewards for bringing the monster in, we're going to jump to 1977. And this is about the most famous photograph of Champ to date. Okay. So in 1977, uh, a woman named Sandra Mancy and her family, they were visiting Lake Champlain. Now, while on the shore, Sandra noticed something large rising up out of the water. It didn't look like anything she could readily identify, but she realized it was worth getting a photograph. So Sandra used her camera to snap a picture of what she saw, and that picture would become remarkably famous. So the the Mansies, they estimate that the creature's neck stuck out about six feet from the water. And the whole object was about 12 to 15 feet long. And the sighting lasted a really long time. About, they estimate anywhere between four and seven minutes, they were able to actually see Champ. Now, during that time, the creature never turned to face the shore. How convenient. Right. (laughs) Um, But Sandra Mancy describes the neck and head as dark in color and said that what we see in the photograph is as much of the creature as they saw when they took the picture. Mm -hmm. Now, understandably, they were initially frightened and the children were playing close to the shore. So Tony Mancy, he, he describes pulling the kids back. Going, hey, let's get away from the get away from the water, get away from the water. You know, something's out there. We don't know what it is. It could be dangerous. But then that fear immediately turned to curiosity. And, you know, staring at this thing for a good four to seven minutes, I guess, is they saw it move. You know, you had to. Right. You know, if you're going to look at something for that length of time and it doesn't move, then you're going to make a deduction that. Uh, it's, it's a tree, it's a log, it's something else. It's not alive. Mm -hmm. So for her to really believe that she saw something alive, then they had to see it move. They just, you know, it was 1977. People just didn't tote around video cameras. Right. Um, so I, you know, what I take away from it is that she firmly believes in what she saw and what's in that photograph. Mm -hmm. Okay, but let's talk about the photograph itself. So years of scrutinization reveal that the photo is indeed authentic and it's unadulterated in any way. However, 
A lot of skeptics have tried to explain the photo as a floating log or an uprooted tree or a large lake sturgeon or gar. So although Mansi's count account seems sincere, it's not without its problems. So one problem in particular is that Sandra is unable to produce a negative, nor is she able to produce any of the other pictures from that role. Now, this could be because the Mansi family says that they were afraid of ridicule for what they had seen. People would think they were crazy or that they were trying to pull a hoax or they just wanted some attention. So they waited four years before they actually reported the photograph. We hear that a lot. Now, you know. yeah, you know, and, and we've talked about that before. Why people would wait because they don't want that kind of publicity. Right. You know, and in 1977, um, you know, the, the, there's a good chance that, you know, the, people would not be as understanding, mm-hmm. you, know? you know, people aren't as understanding now, no. but at least for stuff like this. People seem to be much more interested and willing to listen and understand before they write you off as being a lunatic. Before they call you the kook. You right. Know? Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, so, so, they, so they held back, um, but she says she had a habit of throwing away photo negatives. Now, if, if, our, if any of our listeners are as old as me or older, then you remember the days of having... Envelopes and envelopes and envelopes of photo negatives. Hell, I do. That you, you know. did absolutely nothing with. Yeah. The whole idea was that, oh, you can bring these back and get reprints. You never did Nobody that. ever did that. Nobody. Not that Not that I recall. I mean, now I can remember going through this little end table at my parents' house, and there would just be just envelopes of photos. I mean, mm-hmm. you'd, you'd dig deep and pull one out and be like, holy cow. And, you know, maybe half the negatives were in there or, you know, maybe you just threw them away. So that doesn't bother me as much because at the time, I don't think that Sandra was thinking she was taking a picture of something that would become this famous. Well, no. Or that she's going to have to somehow prove herself. Yeah. I mean, she took a picture and she's showing everybody, hey, look at this picture I took. Mm -hmm. You know, she didn't expect this to become, you know, this worldwide sensation, you know, of a lake monster. And everybody's going to scrutinize every single aspect of her story in the photo. So I don't fault her in that. Right. You know, she wasn't out there for that. You know, if she was out there hunting something like that and then said, well, I pitched the negatives, then I'd be a little bit more leery. But this was this was just the photo she took. And we'll post this photo. I mean, I'm sure you've all seen it, but we'll post this photo on our in our Facebook group. Uh, when we, when we post this episode, I mean, it's, it's hard. I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to look at it and go, yeah, that's an uprooted tree. And I've seen one of the videos where this, um, this skeptic guy, he, he animates a video of an uprooted tree and it's mm-hmm. under the water and part of it's coming up Kinda out of the water. Kind of spins the photo He's and He's like, yeah, he said, you know, it looks like it would be moving at this point and everything. I'm like. Okay, it still doesn't look like a tree to me. No. I mean... It doesn't look like sturgeon either. No, it doesn't look anything like a sturgeon. You know, what? one of the things you said is people said, well, it could be a sturgeon or it could be... I don't I don't see that at all. No. You know, I, I think that's a stretch. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not... I'm not... I understand. I'm not saying it's a lake monster. I'm just saying I don't believe that it's 
any of these things that people have tried to explain it as being. Correct. You know, it's it it may not be a monster, but it ain't this, Mm -hmm. at least not from what I can see. So in the photograph, Champ is out in open water. So there are no points of reference for size, nor is there a reference for how far Sandra is from the creature itself. So this has been a real source of contention for people looking to debunk this photo. Um, you know, they, they, they try to explain, you know, what it could be based on very little reference, you know? So again, you know, if you say it's an uprooted tree or if you say it's a sturgeon, but yet you're going to debunk this photograph because you don't have anything near it to use as a reference for size. Well, then, you know, you could be saying, oh, well, it's tiny and she's actually pretty close to it. So it could be a sturgeon. Mm -hmm. Or you could say, oh, well, you know, maybe she's about 100 to 200 yards away from it when she took the picture. And, you know, it's it's something much, much larger and it's mostly underwater and you're just seeing a portion of it. Right. Okay. But uh, I had a camera like that, you know. A 1977, you know, Instamax camera, you know, that she says that's what she used. Mm -hmm. Look, you're not going to take a decent photograph of something 200 yards away. Absolutely not. You're just not. No. It's going to have to be closer than that. Right. So, you know, at least use the idea of what the the limitations of the technology that she had of the day. Right. And take that into consideration. And I, and I've not read anything where somebody does. No. Or somebody say, look, this, this, this crappy little camera that everybody had, uh, it's just not going to take a really good picture of something that far away that you're going to be able to see anything. It's just, it just, it didn't have that capability. Right. You know, it didn't have a zoom on it, you know? Well, one of the other things uh, is, you know, like you were saying, they say it's this. They say it's a tree stump. They say whatever. But we we come to that burden of proof thing. The burden of proof would always fall on the person who cited the object. Like right. it would fall on Sandra Mancy. So she has the burden of proof to prove that this is champ. But that never falls on the person trying to debunk it. Right. The, the people now, you know, don't take this as me fighting for this is a picture of champ. I'm just arguing both sides here. We're playing devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. We're good at that. Oh, yeah. If <laughs> if you're going to say, OK, this is a tree stump or OK, this is a lake sturgeon, then the burden of proof should fall on you as well to without a shadow of a doubt, prove to me that that is a tree stump. Yeah. Find something on that photo. Find a size reference. Find something that makes me not question it whatsoever. But that has not happened. You know, I can make a computer graphic of anything mm-hmm. underneath the water with some some part of it sticking up and make it work and make it work. I could take I don't know a vacuum cleaner mm-hmm. and stick most of the vacuum cleaner under the water and then draw it. And they're yeah. matching that photo and say, well, no, actually what she's seeing is a Electrolux vacuum right. from 1991 right. 
that happened to get transported back in time and is floating in the lake. Yeah. And on know? a side note, be sure to listen to our episode next week of the haunted vacuum of Lake Champlain. Right. It's an Electrolux. <laughs> <laughs> but the burden of proof is on you to show me that it is indeed an Electrolux. Because uh, I think it could be a rainbow. That's true. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that challenge, Matt. <laughs> But that, I mean, that's the thing is if you're going to say something, don't leave it to the witness to provide all the proof. Right. You need to provide some proof of debunking it. Right. Yeah. Now, there's a lot you can go on there and there's a lot of skeptical, you know, the skeptical inquirer and everything is talking about, well, it's this, it's that, it's this, it's that. Where's your proof? Right. All you have is observation and theories as well. So my biggest point is don't come out and ridicule someone like Sandra Mancy or go, there's no way, you know, you're, you're seeing a, it's a baby gar, you know, you're so dumb. Don't do that until you can prove that. That's right. That's right. It's so easy to just knock somebody off their horse and go, Hey, you know, yeah. it, it's this, you know, or it's that, you know, I can't believe you thought it was a monster or whatever. It's easy to do that. Sure. I mean, it, it's much, much harder to say, okay, we've analyzed this photograph. We think it could be this or this. We're not sure. But these things fit into what we think we're seeing. Um. But you don't have to bash. I mean, all she really did was take a photo of something she didn't know what was. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, over the years, you know, and reading the stories, she thought, oh, well, this fits in along with, you know, the Lake Champlain monster. So maybe it's champ. You know, all in all, I'd much rather look at this photo and go, hey, it's a cool photo. It's been analyzed. They know that the photo is real. So we know it's something. Right. We just don't know what it is. You know, I'm like, I enjoy that even more. I I would rather look at it and go, man, we don't know what that is. But it sure is cool to look at that and think there could be, you know, a creature out there in that lake that we have yet to identify. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if it if it's legitimately supposed to be there and we just don't know what it is yet. Right. You know, that could be a photograph of that. Oh, sure. But to just. You know, Tom, I, I can't I can't stand that. Yeah. You when, know? when you dismiss it out out of hand for no reason, because it doesn't fit your paradigm, you know, that that's doing a disservice to science and everything else by not right. looking into something. Right. You know, um, it, it it's like you said, it, it's been put through all of these, you know, tests to prove that it was a real photo and everything. But neither side has any evidence toward anything. But on that note, the lack of evidence of something existing does not prove that it doesn't exist. That's right. You know, just because I don't have evidence of something existing doesn't mean it's not real. I mean, you you see a lot for Bigfoot stuff, them going back to... You know, well, we didn't have bones or any evidence of mountain gorilla until the 1900s. Doesn't mean that they just popped up and started existing in the 1900s when they were found. 
They existed for long before that, but we didn't have evidence of it. So just because we don't have evidence of something living large like that living in Lake Champlain doesn't mean there isn't something there. Right, right. So one other um, one other sighting that I want to bring up, and and the reason I really like this sighting is because of um, the gentleman's job that reported it. B.J. Lombard. B.J. Lombard is a is a ferry boat captain on Lake Champlain, and one day in the mid nineties, he spotted something on in the water along his usual route. Now Lombard says he steered the ferry closer to the object and as he approached he described what looked like a small submarine rising from the lake said it appeared to be about six to eight feet long and as it rose water cascaded off of it much like a submarine coming to the surface now lombard notes that it was strange that he saw no dorsal fin now remember that because we're going to talk about some theories of what champ may be Mm -hmm. and that lack of a dorsal fin is going to come up again um, but you know, finally Lombard just says, look, I, I'm not sure what I saw, but I definitely saw something. And so, you know, I like that. I mean, this is a man who he's, he's a respected individual, you know, he, he works on this lake. So he's probably seen just about everything you can imagine floating right. or swimming in that lake over the years. And now he has seen something that he doesn't know what it is. And he is willing to say, look, I saw something. It looked like this. I don't know what it was, but something was there. Mm-hmm. You know, now we've talked about people that are, you know, well-respected or might be fearful of coming forward with something like this because they could lose their job. Mm-hmm. You know, this to me, BJ Lombard is one of those people. Sure. You know, a ferry boat captain comes in and says, guys, you won't believe this, but I saw a mermaid out there today and she was waving to me and Mm -hmm. playing a ukulele and Mm -hmm. had red hair. And, you know, they're going to be like, dude, you spent too much time in the sun. Right. (laughs) You know, so to come back and say, listen, y'all, I saw this thing out there moving. I don't know what exactly it was, but it looked like this. You know, it takes a lot of guts, but it also tells me that he did indeed see something. Right. He may not know what it was. I don't know what it was, but it was something. Yeah. And, you know, and and this is one of the accounts that I, I really do believe, you know, somebody, you know, they, they actually witnessed something. I'm not, again, I'm not saying it was a monster. I'm not saying it was champ, but I'm saying it was something. And this guy who's seen so much on that lake didn't know what it was. Yep. Somebody who spends that much time on a lake should know pretty much everything that inhabits that. You would think, I mean, you know, heck I would. Right. I mean, you know, for, I know this, I know this for about a year, I drove the same path to work every single day. I could, I could tell you everything about that route. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew the houses on it. I knew the street signs. And if something was off, something was different. I immediately noticed it right. because I saw it every single day. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're talking about somebody that went back and forth, you know, many times a day, mm-hmm. you know, and he sees something that's like, eh, it's different. Right. But I can't really tell what it is. Right. But it's, it's different. Now, we were talking about evidence and there is some evidence that people say 
is proof that there is an unknown creature in Lake Champlain. They're not necessarily saying that it's Champ, but that it's an unknown creature. And I love I love this. I love this story right here. Yep. It was in 2003. Fauna Communications Research Institute were out there taking underwater readings for, you know, basically using an underwater microphone. See what they could hear. They picked up in three different areas of the lake. They picked up echolocation. Yeah. Now, echolocation, if you don't know, that's what whales and dolphins use for their environment. You know, series of clicks and and whistles and stuff that they make. And then they read kind of like bats do. When it bounces back toward them, they can tell what's in front of them. It's usually used to chase prey Uh or something like that. They picked up echolocation sounds in three different areas of the lake. And when they played it back against known echolocation sounds, it was close to the sound an orca makes or a killer whale. But not the same. But not the same. It had its own signature sound. So it did not match any known animal's echolocation that we have on record. Yeah. And the the researcher is Elizabeth von Muggenthaler. Mm-hmm. And she is a bioacoustician, which is just a science a, a scientist that studies the sounds of nature. Right. So she knows what she's she talking about. She knows what she's talking about. I mean, she's researched this. And according to her, there are no known fish or mammals that produce echolocation other than whales or dolphins. Mm-hmm. So, could there be a whale in Lake Champlain? Probably unlikely. Probably. Could there be a dolphin there? Maybe. Mm. But but dolphins again, they you know there's it's a saltwater mammal. I mean you know they they can go into freshwater. Yeah. You know, but but they typically stay in in much you know more open water. You know, much un- unless they're at Sea World, you know, yeah. or something like that. They're there are freshwater in the Amazon. There are freshwater dolphins in the Amazon. Okay, yeah. So, but but you know. Right. You know, you they're, know there. they're there. And again, it's it's not it's it's the exception, it's not the rule right. for you know, animals like dolphins. So and also, you know, dolphins are so smart. Mm-hmm. If if there was a dolphin and it would, I promise you, it wouldn't be just one. No. I mean, they, they don't, dolphins don't live by themselves. So, I mean, there would be many. You would have seen it. Mm-hmm. Look, I, I have been deep sea fishing a grand total of three times in my life. One out of those three times, I saw dolphins. Right. Now, what are the chances, you know, that out of three, three shots, only three shots, that I'm going to look out and and see a bunch of dolphins jumping out of the water. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I did the like, what I'm getting at is the likelihood that the visitors to Lake Champlain, the people that ride on that ferry, if there were dolphins in that lake, they would have seen them. Oh yeah. I mean, on a regular basis. Yeah. They'd be jumping out of the water and they'd be swimming up and you know, yeah, they would, they would know if it was dolphins. Oh yeah. For sure. So, all that is said to show that something in there is echolocating. 
Right. And most likely it's not a dolphin or a whale. Right. It's something else. And the most recent recording that all of those were back in 2003, but there was another more recent recording in 2014 of this same echolocation pattern. And this was recorded by Katie Elizabeth and Dennis Hall, who are of the research group Champ Search, which is a nonprofit group dedicated to proving the existence of Champ. Now, a lot of people, like Matt was saying earlier, if you go out hunting for something and you find evidence, it's, yeah, sometimes that can be suspicious. However, you know, it was 11 years after the original recordings and it matched the original recordings. So what are the odds that they, you know, it, 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 the odds are not good that they would go out searching for Champ and make this up. Well, and, it, and it sound just like, you know, get a dolphin yeah. call and say they found it in right. Lake Champlain. Right. To me, that that's validity right there. Mm-hmm. You know, I can I can recreate an experiment essentially done in 2002 now and get the same or very similar results. So that that shows that, number one, it, it, it kind of proves Muggenthaler's von Muggenthaler's point that something in there was making this noise. Right. Um, but that when they redo it and get the same response, not only does it show that whatever's doing it is still there, you know, it validates that Von Muggenthaler actually did record this and, and it's legitimate. Right. Whether we know what did it or not. Right. It- you know, Something made that sound. Not saying it's champ, but there is something living in that lake that is producing echolocation that doesn't match any known creature. That's right. Now, saying that, let's get into some theories. One of the first theories is that there is a beluga whale that has reached the lake via the St. Lawrence River. Baby beluga. Pardon this musical break. Um, all of you with kids, you'd know what I mean. Yeah, see, I don't. I, my my kids have four legs and don't watch TV, so I don't know what he's talking about. Um, but okay, let's look at this. Beluga whales do use echolocation to hunt, right? However, we have recordings of beluga whale echolocation, and you can bet that that echolocation that was recorded in the lake was played against a beluga whale. Sure And it didn't match. So that right there negates that there is a beluga whale or any known whale living in or getting trapped in, seasonally moving into Lake Champlain. Uh, Well, and and since we're talking about these theories, let's let's talk about that for a second because it's going to come up. That whole idea of something being trapped there. Now, this lake didn't get cut off from the Atlantic Ocean overnight. Right. I mean, there there wasn't like a, a big earthquake that just sealed it off. I mean, this was this was a natural evolution of the earth mm-hmm. that occurred and separated this lake, and then it transformed into freshwater. Over time. Right. I mean, you know, 
if something, you know, if I'm thinking I've got something trapped in a lake and it can't get back to the ocean, then it, you would imagine that this would be an event that, boom, cut it off. Right. But the problem I have with that idea that something was trapped is that it, not only would it be trapped, it would be cut off from its natural habitat and food supply. Mm-hmm. So it it would have to be more than one sure to adapt and and reproduce to for one to to change from you know a saltwater creature to a freshwater creature right and to change its food source and it would have to stay alive long enough living on what food was available to reproduce right you know so this would have had to have happened over a long period of time so the idea that just some whale got lost and wandered in there and then couldn't get out. Eh. Yeah, it doesn't hold weight for me either. <laughs> you know. And if it was one that got trapped in there millions of years ago when the lake got cut it's off. dead. Well, it, yeah. Or if a, if a whole pod, say, got in there, we would know. Because would we would have seen air-breathing mammals. Come to the surface. Blowing on the surface. We see that in the huge ocean yeah you 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 see whales surface and take a breath in the ocean so you know that over the hundreds of years that people have lived around lake champlain somebody would go yeah there's a pot of whales living in there Mm -hmm. you know don't worry about them that's that's the you know champ whales it 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 they're there but they don't. So you're you're telling me that they stay hidden except for occasionally and it's a whale? I don't think so. You know, doesn't make any sense to me. Now, another one of the theories is sturgeon. Sturgeon do get large. Sturgeon can become huge animals. If you watch river monsters or anything like that, you know that Jeremy Wade can catch a big sturgeon. Yeah. And they get big and, you know, if you've ever gone to an aquarium, I'm sure you've seen them. If you haven't caught one, you know, you can go and see them. And they do, you know, people say, well, you know, if you don't know what you're looking at, then you might think it was a monster. Yeah, you might yeah, I mean, you might think it was a monstrous creature. Go, go look up a picture of a sturgeon. I mean, it, it has some monster qualities. Right. But I just, I don't know that it has the qualities of what is described in all these sightings. Mm-mm. I mean, m- maybe a few of them, you know, you could say, ah, that might have been. Because, I, you know, I'm not one that's going to say all 300 plus sightings of Champ are legit. Right. Um, you know, whether they just were mistaken or they did see something like a sturgeon and they reported it mm-hmm. and it just got logged under Champ. Um. But yeah, I mean, it, it's got some pretty monstrous qualities. Right. But on any TV show, at any aquarium, anything, have you ever seen a sturgeon swim holding its head above water, a few feet above water, and then diving back underneath water? I never have. Not, not that I recall. Right. So in- I don't, I don't watch Wild Kingdom anymore, but- well, that's pretty much <laughs> I all I watch. Is, I didn't see it there. No, all I watch is nature shows, and I've never seen this happen. Um, 
you know, like you said, it may apply to a few of these that they see something under their boat when they Mm -hmm. look down under the water and they see a grayish silvery creature that takes a weird turn underneath their boat or it bumps their boat because sturgeon are known to bump small boats. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to hold its head above the water surface and swim with its head above water. Yeah, and look around. Right. So you can't say that it's a sturgeon for all of these. And I'm not even going to say it's a sturgeon for most of these. Because if you live on the lake, yet again, if you spend a lot of time living on that lake, you're going to know what a sturgeon looks like, and you're going to know what a sturgeon looks like underneath the water. Right. And, you know, it goes back to the owl thing. You know? (laughs) Well, this is not an owl. Well, it could be. I mean, you ask some of these people, it might be a swimming owl. Now, what you're seeing is an owl. This is a freshwater owl. It's a freshwater owl <laughs> held up by swamp gas uh, riding on a weather balloon. It's you an know. owl riding a sturgeon. Right, right. So, I mean, well, there's a possibility. That's the most logical thing I've heard all night. Thank you, Matt. As it's a, it's a rodeo owl that's learning to break sturgeon. What we're yeah. not seeing uh-huh. is the saddle. That yeah, that's the right. owl is using. Well, I mean, you know. You can't see everything. Uh, you know, owls can't afford no saddle. What are you talking about? Well, that's a valid point. It, you know. Sturgeon, bareback sturgeon. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. I saw that movie, Matt. I think I saw <laughs> No, never mind. That wasn't it. That wasn't it. That was another movie. Oh, man. <laughs> see, I purposefully didn't go there. Because I knew. <laughs> <laughs> to the depths we go. Oh, no kidding. Okay, so another theory that people put out there is seals and they're saying well the humps that you see that you see of champ as it rolls and Mm -hmm. whatever you're actually seeing the backs of seals as they swim in tandem across the lake okay i mean i'm i've seen that you know you can go look up videos of of seals doing that where you know they crest their back over the water and dive back down but at some point in that, you see a seal head come up. Because guess what? They breathe air, too. Right. You know, they can hold their breath for a long time. And they time. don't stay in the water. No. All the time. No. So, you know, you're going to see it break surface. You're going to see hands come up because it's got hands that it uses for a lot. And it, it's not going to just stay with its back above water the whole time. Yeah, and you'd hear it playing that little trumpet, yeah. you know, that they play in the circus. You know? Right, right. Yeah, just like that. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I can see that from a great distance. If you're looking hundreds of feet away and you happen to see a seal, you may see the back of it for a brief moment and think you saw a sea monster. But, what, monster, I'm, but what I'm curious is that, and I didn't see this, I didn't. I didn't read anything about the seal seal theory, but are seals common around Lake Champlain? I mean, I I didn't. I, I don't know that much about seals, right? I, um, but I didn't. I didn't think that seals were just hanging around freshwater lakes in North America. They might. They I mean, might. They, you know, they, somebody proved me wrong. I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm just curious. You know, it's it's not an animal. That I've ever had friends go on vacation and go, look at these pictures of a seal. And they weren't like 
on an Alaskan cruise or somewhere, you know, where I would right. think, hey, did you see a seal? Right. You know, on further, a, much further north than where we are. Now, I mean, again, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe there path. are. Yeah. You know, this is, you know, Vermont and upstate New York, you know, and Canada. Yeah. I mean, And they may maybe. migrate in at some point, but, yeah. you know, yet again, if you live on that lake, you're going to know what a seal looks like and you're going to know the the seal migration times. And you're going to yeah. know when they come into your lake and when they don't. Because, again, a seal is not an animal that you're just going to see one of. Right. You know, they, they live in groups. Yep. You know. so Flock of seals. They travel in flocks. <laughs> Flock of seals. i got the worst hair. <laughs> I, you know, I thought it was a great band. Um, so the other one we kind of talked about was tree trunks and stumps. And this may work for glancing shots. But again, if it's moving, it's not a tree trunk. Yeah. And a lot of people want to explain that away with it's an illusion based on the wind and the moving water. You know, waves will make uh, an inanimate object that's floating just under the surface appear to be moving. And maybe, you know, I, I, I agree with that, that. For sure, if you see something floating in the lake and and there's some waves going by it, that it can appear to be moving. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I find it hard to think again, like I said, with the Mansi photo, if I'm looking at it for this amount of time, mm -hmm. I'm I'm either going to see it move or not move. And if I see it not move, then my brain is going to tell me that it's an inanimate object of some type. Correct. And at that point, I probably don't care what it is. Yeah, you'll look away at, at that point. But if I see it move, my brain's going to say it's alive. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I want to know what it is. You know, fight or flight, I want to know, am I in danger? You know, do I need to be aware? What is it? Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I believe that some people that thought they saw Champ or something could have seen um, an uprooted tree under the water or a log or anything like that. And I understand all the physics, you know, about, you know, rotting, decomposing wood and, you know, gas escapes and it rises to the surface before it falls. I get all that. I understand how it can work, uh, you know, but I also believe that people probably saw it, were confused by it and, and thought, hey, we, we, we saw something moving out there. Mm-hmm. So I believe that that it, that can be attributed to some of these cases. A very small number. But not all of them. Right. Right. Now, let's get into some of the more elaborate theories. Now, one of them that is put forth for, I would say, 95 to 99% of lake monsters and the like is the plesiosaur. And... If y'all don't know what a plesiosaur is, a plesiosaur is a reptile. And it was one of the first fossil reptiles that was ever found. And it was an air breather. It bore live young, and indications are that it was warm-blooded. But it, it had a long neck, a broad, flat body, short tail, and it had four flippers on the side of its body. No dorsal fin. Right. 
that you see i told you to come back no no dorsal fin no dorsal fin long neck broad flat head like a wide pudgy flat body dorsal fins and it didn't really have a tail now this description is what's given i would say pert near every time that champ is described it's described as a plesiosaur sure and we don't have the stories because they're there's they were kind of glancing stories but uh, one lady apparently saw a plesiosaur walking on land mm-hmm. that she was at her boat dock and she saw it walk and it went under a light and what she described was a plesiosaur walking on its flippers mm-hmm. the exact same description as I gave you. Right. And it was kind of a grayish green color. Mm, yeah. And, you know, we, right now, we don't know what color a plesiosaur was because we don't have, you know, skin samples to say that this is what color it was. So we don't know. It could have been gray. It could have been red, you know, for all we know. But, Matt, you were saying that you were reading that there are so many different types of plesiosaurs. Yeah. There's 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 two two basic variety of plesiosaur and and within those there's multiples of of different plesiosaurs or that fall under that plesiosaur family. Um and and there's an evolution to these things. And and the thing to understand is they're they're not they're not dinosaurs, so they get looped in with dinosaurs because of the era that their fossils date back to, but they're not actually dinosaurs. Um, so that seems to make it a little bit more plausible that a creature that wasn't necessarily a dinosaur managed to evolve and survive. I mean, you know, everybody's going to go. Well, they they found a coelacanth alive, you know, off the coast of Africa, mm-hmm. and they you know thought this prehistoric fish had been extinct for millions of years, right? And then they find one. So, the idea that something could could live for millions of years and evolve under the water mm-hmm. is not that extreme. I mean, some people will absolutely go, no way in the world. That you know this could happen, like well, you know we we had we didn't have actual evidence of a giant squid either right. until just a few years ago. So, but we had a pretty good idea that they were down there, and there were a lot of reports of you know the kraken, mm-hmm. you know, and and everybody kind of thinks now, based on what the reports are, that a giant squid was what was known as the kraken. Mm-hmm. So. Again, it's it's one of these things. It's just because we don't know that it's there or that it's real, it doesn't mean that it's not. Right. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing that these folks will do that will say, hey, it's it can't be a plesiosaur, is based on the evidence of the skeletons that we have, and we have some really good, almost complete skeletons uh, of these creatures. Their neck strength, the bone structure, would not have been there for them to hold their neck up out of the water and look around. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it just it it physically wouldn't go that way. You know, it was meant to be supported, you know, by the water and it extended out in front of them. There wasn't much reason for this animal to be able to arch his head up. Right. You know, like a periscope. Right. The other thing is that the the flippers, you know, the the way they're structured, at least based on these skeletons, they probably would not have been able to support the body weight Mm-mm. of of a creature like this on dry land. At least not enough for it to be able to propel itself. You know, like this uh, this woman accounts walked under this light right. out, outside of her house, right? Where where she could see it and see those flippers. So it, it makes you wonder, what did she see? Right. If you believe that she saw something and she's not making this up, you know what what else could she have seen? I mean, you know, you think, well, okay, seals kind of look that way. You know, seals have flippers and a short tail. And they kind of waddle around, you know, but again, we, we've discussed seals and the idea that if somebody lived on that lake and they looked out and saw a seal, they would know. Right. There wouldn't be a seal though, that stood like 10 feet tall. Right. You know, right now to play devil's advocate real quick on your neck and flipper thing. That that's not a sentence y'all thought y'all hear tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about your neck and flip a thing. Um, It, that is the idea that we have of the fossils that we have found. Now, if, if it has been isolated in a lake for several million years, it could have evolved to raise its head and hold its head up and out of the water if its food source happened to be out of the water. Like, it realized that I'm going to get a lot of food if I'm able to stick my head up out of water and catch birds mm-hmm. or feed on the shore or something like that. So it could have, through these millions of years, developed the neck muscles and changed its bone structure to be able to raise its head. Yeah. And this also goes for flippers. If the flippers needed to, over time, Evolution could have moved them to support weight and moved them more under the body rather than on the side of the body. But theories, playing devil's advocate. That's right. Know. That's right. And, you know, the the idea that something over that amount of time could evolve the ability to do such, because we're looking at, if we're looking at a fossilized skeleton, then this is the way it was then. Mm-hmm. We don't have any evidence of the way it is now. Right. So, you know, it, it you could consider the fact that, you know, an animal that was left over and had to evolve to, to live in, in a different environment, you know, could develop the ability to use its flippers for, you know, locomotion on land. You know, it, it would learn to adapt to a food source that, was not a water-based animal and could learn to echolocate. Mm -hmm. If it didn't already know how to echolocate, you know, we can't tell through fossils if it was able to. You know, you know, a lot of the study into dinosaurs, you know, especially um, some of the animals like the Velociraptor, which 
the the movies portray these creatures differently mm-hmm. than what science really says they probably right. were that they were actually truly more like birds than right. reptiles and that the but that honking that you hear in those in the Jurassic Park movies that the raptors do and the 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 clicking and everything you know all of that sound comes from you know that the the skull the the open area in the skull right okay much like birds um and they don't see evidence of that in prehistoric plesiosaurs true but again just because they didn't have it then doesn't mean they couldn't have it now right but you know i mean it also doesn't mean that it could be something totally different right that can do all of this stuff right that we don't know because i mean like i said we have animals that echolocate we have animals that predominantly live in the water but are mobile on land using flippers Mm -hmm. okay so we have evidence of creatures that can do this so it's not like we're just making up an animal that says well no animal can do that we've got animals that can Mm -hmm. so the idea that okay if it's not a plesiosaur could it be a descendant or could it be a totally different animal that we just don't know about yet we haven't been able to to examine and find or is it an animal that we've we've known about that's evolved to something different that we don't understand yet? Right. Right. Now, this next one, it fits along the same lines as the plesiosaur, so we don't really have to go into it. I'll just kind of describe what it is. Another one is the Tanistrophius. Now, this was a 6-meter or 20-foot-long reptile that dated back to the Middle Triassic period, and it had a really long neck, which was about three meters or 10 feet long. So it ended up being longer than its body and tail combined. Rest of it kind of looks similar to the plesiosaur, but different in the fact that it had this huge neck, long neck. Think of a a brontosaurus underwater, you know? Um, So same theories and everything for that as the plesiosaur. But another one that I thought was kind of interesting and weird is the Bacillosaurus. And it's one of the largest known animals to exist from 66 million years ago to around 15 million years ago when modern cetaceans began to reach enormous size. Now, all that to say, this was one big ginormous whale. It was basically the grandfather of all the whales we have now. Um, It was an air breather. So it would break surface to breathe. It looked very similar to the whales we have now in proportion and everything. So, again, back to what Matt and I were talking about with the beluga whale. If it got trapped years and years and years and years and years ago and evolved, you would know it was in that lake because it would have to break surface. Right. You would know that we had a living Bacillosaurus in that lake they were not small they were large and they had to break surface a lot so if there was a pod of them living you would know it in this lake now another theory that is one that matt and i tend to put forth toward a lot of these and it's basically just to make you think is this 
Could Champ, like a lot of other cryptids, be a tulpa? Where, if you don't know what tulpa is, go back and listen to that episode. But, where the ancient Native American tribes had so much belief in a creature in this lake that a creature was produced in this lake. And then through the centuries since, everyone living around that lake projected that thought of a creature living there. So there is something living there now because we created the lake monster through our mental energies, which is what a tulpa is. Yeah, and we talked about this right before we started recording. The idea that if you believe something or if you've seen an image enough that if you go expecting to see it or hoping to see it and you see something, your brain will automatically alter it so that that's what you believe you saw. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you, if you if you go out there and you, you don't know the legends, you, you've never seen photographs. You've never heard a description and you see something and you, your brain says, I don't know what that is. I'm going through a laundry list of things that I know what are, and that's not on the list. So I don't know what it is, but if you have an idea of what it might be and what it might be is champ, you know, or some other lake monster, then your brain will kind of shift you to that belief. I saw it, you know, not a tulpa per se, where you know your your brain and the collective consciousness is actually producing a real thing, but it's not mass hysteria, but enough of. I guess it's the power of suggestion. Mm-hmm. If I tell you there's something down here, and I show you pictures of what it looks like, and I give you stories of people that have seen it and what they describe, and then I send you out here. I say, here you go. You're not a scientist. You're not a researcher. We're going to put you out on this lake. You tell us what you see. If you see anything that you can't explain, guess what? You saw it. Right. That's what it was. You know, I couldn't. If you saw something that was totally explainable, but because of the the light or the angle or the distance, you couldn't tell what it was, then you saw it. You know, your brain's going to tell you, you saw it, that was it, mm-hmm. or that could have been it, you know? So, you know, that that's a problem with a lot of these legends and they've been around and the stories are there and the photos are there and the descriptions are there and the drawings are there. You, you build that up in your head. Right. And you make it a reality over something that may, maybe it's not. Right. You know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Either way, in my head, that was it. Right. Now, the last one we've got, and before we end it, I wanted to talk about this, and Matt and I discussed this beforehand, and I think he thinks I'm crazy now, but what I need you to do... (laughs) Now? (laughs) uh, Okay, valid point. Valid point. Um, What I need you guys to do is open your mind to whatever, you know, clear it of any preconceived notion you have, and let's just talk for a minute. Now, a lot of researchers say in order for something to live, 
for hundreds of years or thousands of years, as Champ supposedly has, that there needs to be a breeding population of at least 100 to 200 or more animals, right? So it's not going to happen with two. It's, you know, they're not going to live for thousands of years. Nothing that we know of does except, you know, maybe, I don't know, clams, you know. <laughs> yeah. But. Sea turtles. Yeah. But there's there's nothing that's going to live that long. So you have to have a large breeding population. And they say, okay, if there were hundreds of champs, we would for sure know it. And I agree. If there were hundreds of 10-foot-plus champs in that lake, you would know it, just like you would with whales or anything else. Here's where you got to open your head. Now, let's say there are 200, 300, 1,000 in this lake. But 99% of them are a foot long or smaller because there was one unverified story of a guy finding a baby champ that was a foot long, taking it to a college there, them saying, yeah, this is an undocumented animal, and then the specimen disappeared. So it's unverified. We can't find anything but that one story on it. However, let's say that there are, you know, 500 to 1,000 foot long or smaller champs in that lake. And only at one time, there can only be one that is 10 foot long or longer. This is the breeding female. Like you have in beehives, you have a queen bee that does all the breeding and she is larger than the rest of the hive. Yet there are drone bees that mate with her to create other workers scouts, all this other stuff. And when she dies, another queen bee is selected, grown up, and she becomes larger than the rest of the hive. So is it possible that a lake monster-like champ, and this could go for any other ones, but a lake monster-like champ, the large ones that you are seeing is the breeding dominant female. And all the rest of them, there is a breeding population there, but they're small. Like the anglerfish. The female is huge, the male is small. Once it breeds, it attaches and it withers away. So, how do we know that this is not the case? There could be. And you say, well, we're, okay, the bodies of all these small ones. Yeah, I get that. But how often do you see fish skeletons just washed up on the shore? You see them, but not often. And these are big fish that you see. You don't normally see minnows and stuff, the skeletons of minnows washing up on the shore. They get eaten. There's a healthy population of fish that we know about in that lake. So if there are hundreds and hundreds of baby champ a foot long or smaller in that lake, they would get eaten. If they died, they would be eaten by whatever, a catfish, sturgeon, anything in that lake. And the one we're seeing happens to be this generation's breeding female. 
So back to what Matt was saying about if it was curious and it came up for photos, what if that curious one was that generation's breeding female and it was curious, but after it died, then all of the other ones that took its place and became the breeding female was not as curious. It's a little more shy. So you've got the potential of many different breeding females with many different personalities, which could cause the range of sightings, how you see it, one head up, one head down, you know, all throughout the centuries. One's really mean. One hasn't attacked anybody. Whatever. I'm not necessarily saying this is what I believe, but it's a thought project. Think about that. I've got something to say about that. All right. Adam's views are not necessarily the views of me or Graveyard Tales. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Which is true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, obviously, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's another theory, and it, you know, it's as good as any other. I mean, if if we're gonna consider that there's actually something that we don't know that lives in Lake Champlain, so. On that note, what do you believe? Do you believe there's a monster that lives in that lake? Do you believe there's lake monsters at all? Do you believe that it's something that we we just haven't discovered yet? That it's an an undocumented animal? That it's a creature that is supposed to be there, but we just don't know? Um, you know, let us know. Let us know what you think. We'd, we'd be real interested to hear. Um, so... You know, we we really wanted to use this episode to gear up for July for Lake Monster Month and, and get you guys thinking about this because, you know, we're going to go into some that you haven't heard of probably, and we're going to talk about some pretty famous ones that you have. Um, and, you know, the, the most uh, undiscovered places on this planet are underwater. Absolutely. So... Um, there's a lot of mystery down there. There's a lot of things that we don't know. Uh, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Me too. So I'm going to have fun. So on that note, be sure and check out our website at graveyardpodcast.com. There you can find information about us. You can find links to purchase our merchandise. You can become a patron. And of course, you can listen to Graveyard Tales. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Graveyard Tales and join our Facebook group uh, to interact with us, share stories, see some really cool pictures, and get inside info on upcoming episodes. As always, please go and rate and review us on iTunes. And thank you for listening. And until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. Mm -hmm.